Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I am Peter Spiegel. Hello, Lori. Hi, Peter. How are you? I am just great. Okay, I wanted to start today's show with some uh, notable news items from all over the place, okay? Let's start in, wow, in Texas, you know, the severe cold snap is an incredible thing. And I want to uh, recognize and tell you a little bit about this amazing heroic group called Sea Turtle Inc., a nonprofit group. They are a rehab center in South Padre Island, Texas, on the coast there. And they have been super busy rescuing these uh, sea turtles who have been cold stunned. That's the term. And what happens in the cold water is that they just become helpless and almost lifeless. And they're just floating there, bobbing, and they can't swim. They don't move their flippers, and they are just liable to, to die there. This group is very versed in rescuing these because this happens once in a while and maybe they'll have a couple of dozen or a hundred or two at a time and they can handle that in their facility. But they were overwhelmed and the community has really come out to help them. They've got their volunteer organization plus many people who are just uh, coming out to help them and uh, the turtles are found along the coast or in rocks or just floating in the water picked up by boats and they are literally delivered to the rescue center with overflow at the South Padre Island Convention Center which is nearly not ready for this but they became ready and you can see the photos and the videos of just rows and rows of these uh, turtles just quietly recovering it's an incredible sight. They have rescued up to 4,500 of these turtles. Some are sort of as big as maybe a toaster. Some are huge, as big as a table almost. And uh, they're just waiting for them to perk up. And then they release them. And they've got a video on their Facebook where they are on a boat and they are lifting these turtles and they drop them down a slide and into the water they go. And it's the most... uh, miraculous and wonderful thing. The whole community is coming out to support them. And the most up-to-date information is on their Facebook page. So you have to check out Sea Turtle Inc. So they released them where they caught them? No, I don't think they tracked them so specifically. They released them in the sea, in the, in the Gulf. So at the center, they warm up their bodies or how do they? Yeah. And also thanks to Elon Musk, he donated a huge generator to help uh, heat that convention center. All it takes is for their body temperature to get up to their normal. Yeah. They can, yeah. And then they perk up and then they're off. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. It's it's incredible. It is amazing. So, well done, Sea Turtle Inc. Lori, here's another one I think you like, especially because it involves humane uh, scientific methods to learn more about animals in the wild. We like that very much. And so there is this technology called fecal facts. Fecal facts. F-A-C-S. And that is a new technique that is able to um, extract DNA from droppings, fecal droppings from an animal, and determine which of the DNA actually belonged to that animal rather than the bacteria or the other stuff that the animal might have eaten. So this way you can really look at what you want to look at just by examining the droppings, right? So very valuable because now you can examine the genetics and what's happening with the genes in animals in the wild. So a group of researchers have just published their findings related in this instance to capuchin monkeys. 
They are very cute and uh, mischievous uh, little fellas, but they're really interesting because they have a relatively large brain for their small body size, so everyone wants to know why is that, and they also tend to live very long, sometimes past age 50 years, which is unusual for such a small animal. So the researchers are able to look at things in the DNA, such as how it responds to damage, the metabolism that it controls, cell cycle, insulin signaling, and other stuff that is related to longevity, and uh, all by looking at the droppings and being able to parse it out from the other DNA that's in there. So it's really interesting, and this technique ought to allow us to learn a lot about uh, animals in the wild without disturbing them. So the scientists go in the wild and just start picking up droppings? That Well, I would say the scientists have a team, and you've got your sort of postdocs, and then you've got your PhD candidates, <laughs> and then you've got your... Uh, students. Got your students and your students' assistants, and somewhere down the line is the picker-upper. <laughs> so, yeah. And how does the picker-upper know <laughs> that it's the monkey's <laughs> droppings and not oh, a rodent's good. droppings? you got or... a spotter. Dropping spotter. Oh, that's good. That's even further down the road, huh? <laughs> it's a side branch. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, interesting technology. Okay, back to University of Michigan, one of my uh, least favorite universities in the entire world. But they are going crazy because they found three little spiders in a library basement that no one even goes to. And these spiders were these Mediterranean recluse spiders that are almost never dangerous, but have a bad reputation of causing bad bites. Why these spiders are in the library basement there is not really uh, described, but they totally overreacted. They shut this library down for like two weeks. Who goes to libraries anymore? I know, that's a funny thing. Like, why is it even there? Anyway, these recluse spiders, like I said, have a bad reputation. Most of the bites don't cause any problem or are just mild, although occasionally you can get a bad skin reaction with necrosis. But finding Mediterranean spiders in Michigan is now been reported, and I uh, hope uh, University of Michigan recovers from this trauma. Are they small? Or are like, they like... It might be like an inch across, an inch and a half. Okay, so they're not like tarantula-sized no, spiders. They're, yeah, so they're I, little baby spiders. Yeah, they, when they get in your clothing and get freaked out, that's when they can bite, you know? University of Michigan. Our friends at the Pet Poison Helpline, we've talked about them a number of times, and uh, we've had them on a few times, haven't we? Yeah. They're really a good uh, resource that you may want to get to know just in case if you have uh, any animals at home. They have a new publication called Toxin Tales that's designed to educate pet lovers and veterinary staff about things that can happen to animals, and they are giving it by way of stories. And... Uh, this is particularly interesting and pertinent to us because when we walk, we have encountered mushrooms growing out of the grass. And we're always wondering, is that a dangerous mushroom? How scared should we be? We have no idea how to identify what's a dangerous mushroom. Then we wonder, what would we do if one of the dogs just sort of ate a mushroom? So they describe this very scary story of an 80-pound dog who ate part of a mushroom in actually the large backyard of a family. And uh, this was later identified to be the so-called destroying angel mushroom. Oh, my goodness. One of the deadliest mushrooms known in nature. In this instance, 
The mushroom was immediately pulled out of its mouth, but the dog did ingest some of it. The dog did not have an immediate reaction, but started vomiting approximately seven hours after the exposure and was said to be not moving. That's when they realized it was very serious, which I would say. Anyway, this mushroom gives off this toxin called amatoxin, which is very deadly because it interferes with protein synthesis and causes liver and kidney failure. The animals that ingest the mushrooms, they develop the signs within six to 12 hours, like vomiting and diarrhea. And then there is about a 12 to 24 hour period where you think things are going okay. They call it like the false recovery time. And then things go really bad. Oh my goodness. And so uh, luckily this uh, dog was treated with a supportive, mostly supportive treatment like IV fluids and vitamin K1 and what they refer to as a liver protectant. I'm not really sure what and anti-nausea drugs, and fortunately, the dog uh, recovered. But it is a very close call, often fatal. So you want to stay away from destroying angel mushroom. This mushroom is a quite pretty mushroom. It is a little tall and slender. It's white in color, and uh, you can learn to identify it. Related to this, I did a little further reading about the destroying angel mushroom, and I came across this incredible personal account written by a quite a literate writer which was published on the Cornell Mushroom blog called I Survived the Destroying Angel and this gentleman found these mushrooms and against his sort of better judgment he uh, took them home and sauteed them and ate them didn't really enjoy them that much wondered why he did that and he became really ill and he went to the hospital in Ithaca and then soon thereafter was transferred to Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester where they have a what do they have there a liver transplant team that's how scared they were that uh, this was going to go south for this guy and it almost did and he describes a blow-by-blow of how close he was to needing a liver transplant you're there hoping for the best there's not a lot of good uh, treatment that they have for you supportive treatment they gave him penicillin which has a certain action they gave him lipoic acid but mostly it's sort of hope for the best and fortunately he turned the corner his uh, liver did not fail and his kidneys survived and a couple of weeks later he was uh, back in business so not too smart what does he just go out in the wild and see you know, mushrooms pick some and thinks he can saute them you know, and eat them he he's an interesting guy he is very in touch with nature maybe not in touch enough and uh made a mistake I don't know. Anyway, going back to animals, uh, it's probably worthwhile knowing what grows in your area, you know? Peter, we've talked about poisonous mushrooms in the past, so it's not just this one. There are a few, actually many, that are poisonous and toxic to your pet if consumed. And I even remember speaking to a veterinarian who was an expert on this, and his advice was, if your dog eats any mushrooms, that you should watch for symptoms and call the Pet Poison Helpline right away. And that number, I'll tell you right now, which you should just have in your phone, and that is 800-213-6680. Pet Poison Helpline, 800-213-6680. Okay, you're listening to Animals Today. More news after this break.
For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. editor-in-chief of the medical journal called Virulence. You get that one. Yes. Virulence. His name's Kevin Tyler. He was the co-author of an editorial that talked about the possibility of pets, dogs and cats in the future, needing to be vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. And the theory, which is not happening uh, yet, then dogs and cats might become reservoirs for the disease and then repass it back to people. He's just saying it could happen because we know that SARS-CoV-2, it can infect cats and dogs. It's a big problem in minks. It's a problem in tigers. We know gorillas, such as the ones in San Diego, are now infected. And uh, so this virus is a very strange virus, and it's now we've got mutated strains that are easily transmissible. And uh, maybe dogs and cats are going to need to be vaccinated against this. So they would be asymptomatic carriers? I think that's what he's getting at, yeah, yeah. Or maybe they would become ill. But I think it is a message to potential vaccine developers that you could start working on this now. You can't just sell it unless that you get a license for it, but maybe there'll be a need for this in the, in the future. Hopefully not. Wow. And I know, Lori, you've talked about the minks before. They definitely have the disease and they can transmit it back to people. And so uh, it's, it's a real phenomenon. Yeah. A little update on the use of coronavirus sniffing dogs. Sniffing dogs. Yes. Uh, there are highly trained dogs who are able to detect coronavirus in people who think they're fine trying to walk into basketball games like they're cool with everything. Well, uh, they are going to be employed by the basketball team, the Miami Heat, at their American Airlines Arena. They're going to start re-allowing limited numbers of fans, maybe 2,000 per game, uh, to watch the Miami Heat play. And they've got a team of about 10 dogs, highly trained dogs, and they're going to have the fans one by one go into a special area and the dog uh, will uh, try to detect whether they are infected. And if the dog sits, then you've got trouble. Then you've been called out and you are, I guess, going to get turned away or turned in. I I don't know what happens then. They They don't really say. If you're afraid of dogs or allergic, they've got alternatives or they can do a, a quick rapid antigen test right there if you want. But dog sniffing coronavirus is happening. You know, I predicted this a while back. Yeah. Do you remember that? I said instead of someone standing there with a thermometer checking everyone as they walk into a place of business, they may employ dogs. And they are. It's also happening at airports in Dubai and Helsinki already. Mm. So, Yeah. So are these specifically bred dogs to do this, or are they rescue dogs? Or yeah, probably not rescue. My sources dogs. don't don't say, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, well, 
Well, we know dogs can sniff out cancer. Yep. We know certain dogs can sniff out when someone has an impending seizure. Right. Or when someone might become hypoglycemic. Yeah. The dog gives the owner a warning. And uh, evidently there was a recent study from Germany showing the incredible accuracy of, of the dogs in, in sniffing coronavirus. So wow. that's the uh, alleged basis of this uh, use. The Humane Society of the United States is reporting two undercover studies that they have uh, conducted recently. And one is out of Indiana, which I will tell you about in a second. And then there is another one out of Texas. And it has to do with this horrible wildlife killing contests, wildlife killing contests. Teams participate and they go after, in the Indiana instance, coyotes, and they want to shoot the largest one or the smallest one. You've got teams, and it's just the sickest thing. They make a contest out of killing animals. They do make a contest. It's uh, disgusting. You know, people and groups, one group in particular, criticizes the Humane Society of the United States for various reasons. For all sorts of nonsense, like the salary of their executives or the fact that they are not actually shelters in themselves. But there are very few groups that have the resources to go undercover and uh, provide exposés like this to affect legislation. And uh, you just have to, in my opinion, acknowledge the unique work that this group can do. And I, I support them and I love reporting on these things. You just can't accomplish this easily without their resources. Anyway, Kitty Block, who is the president and CEO, she writes, killing coyotes for cash and prizes and then throwing them away like trash, which is what they're doing, is barbaric. These animals are essential to a healthy ecosystem. This kind of sadistic competition needs to be banned in every state. Mm. And it is barbaric. It is sadistic. When you hear a quote from one of the participants who uh, says that he enjoys it. The quote is, I enjoy it. He uses his AR-15 rifle with night vision to kill the animals. He killed 128 coyotes last season. Oh, my God. A couple other points. At least 18 wildlife killing contests have been held in that state, Indiana, since 2015. Uh, Seven states have banned wildlife killing contests, and the goal is to add all the other states, Arizona, California, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Mexico, Vermont, and Washington. Coyotes and foxes are the most often targeted in these contests in Indiana, but also they go after bobcats, crows, woodchucks, squirrels, rattlesnakes, raccoons, rabbits, porcupines, badgers, and skunks. And in some of the western states, mountain lions and wolves are killed in the contest. Wolves are particularly fun targets, aren't they? Now, these animals, as a Kitty Block stated, are vital to the ecosystem, and trying to control populations of them does not achieve the uh, stated goals, which is to protect wildlife or whatever they're saying. These animals are vital. They uh, help control the spread of tick-borne diseases by reducing the number of rats and mice which carry the ticks. Plus, they should just live. The Humane Society of the United States and more than 50 other organizations have formed the National Coalition to End Wildlife Killing Contests, and you can find that at the Humane Society website. In Indiana, you can contact your representatives and visit the Indiana Natural Resources Commission and tell them to ban these contests. So that's their Indiana report. And in Texas, similar story. They have a lot of contests there, too, and uh, in this one, the... Victims were bobcats, gray foxes, coyotes, raccoons, 
and other animals, and you can just see them being unloaded from their trucks and just dumped onto the ground. There's no use for these dead animals. It's not like they're turned into any product. They're just destroyed by these high-power weapons. So sad. And once again, those who seek to keep these contests alive, they falsely claim that they help prevent wildlife livestock conflicts. No evidence on that. And of course, the contests do nothing but promote a culture of insensitivity and cruelty against wild animals. So It's tragic. And you're not going to uh, change the minds of these folks, so you have to legislate. And uh, that's why you need the power of a group like the Humane Society. So congratulations and thank you. Peter, that was really good. Thank you. Okay. Okay, don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is about helping rabbits. You can help rabbits in your everyday life by choosing the household products and cosmetics you buy carefully. Look for the leaping bunny sign and only buy cruelty-free items. Soaps and detergents are especially critical, and if the package does not specifically state the product was not tested on animals, you can assume it was. At shelters which have bunnies, you can become a bunny adoption counselor, learn how to trim nails, and become expert in a host of other helpful activities specific to rabbits. And this was your Animals Today Minute. Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure of eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise quick movements, including backwards and upside down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Well, welcome back. We had a very good response to the interview with Leif Cox, and he is back with us today. Just to remind you, Leif is founder and president of the Orangutan Project, which he started in 1998, and he's a world-acclaimed expert in conservation and developing conservation plans to protect orangutans and ensuring their survival. And he is here today to announce a fairly new initiative called Sumatran Rescue Alliance. Hello, Leif. Welcome. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you. Okay, so... Just to get listeners up to speed, would you uh, kindly recap some of the main points from our talk last summer about what the orangutan project is and 
the programs uh, it's employing to save orangutans? The orangutan project is looking to save the orangutans um, and the other biodiversity, wildlife and the rainforests for which they live. The main strategy is to save eight complete functioning ecosystems of the right type, shape and size of rainforest and, um, and bring the orangutans and the other biodiversity through this extinction crisis. But we also have to address specifically um, things such as um, human-elephant conflict um, with the Sumatran elephant, tiger poaching, and also the illegal trade in orangutans, um, because orangutans being the slowest reproducing species in the world, if you only take very small numbers of females, um, let's say less than 1%, the population can spiral to extinction. And, and therefore, um, one of the reasons we started the Smartphone Rescue Alliance with two wonderful Indonesian partners is to help the Indonesian government um, put a hold and stop the illegal trade in orangutan exiting Indonesia um, for the profit of a greedy few who seek to exploit orangutans. Okay, so this notion of illegal wildlife trade is something we've spoken about many times on the show, but involving this particular animal, I think, is new to us. Who is buying these and why do they want them? Mm -hmm. One of the main reasons people um, buy them is for these entertainment shows, you know, boxing orangutans and hold the orangutan and these sorts of things. So just for um, public amusement, yeah. Um, and a few rich individuals want to keep them as pets, especially when they're young, because obviously they're very cute and adorable. And so the mother is killed and they're put into illegal pet trade. And what we've seen with all this wildlife trade is very closely linked with the illegal drug trade and, and legal arms trade. It's really the, the same people who have those skills in moving illicit goods. So, um, it's a good way of stopping a whole bunch of really bad things which are happening in the world, um, as well as saving the orangutans, um, it's to stop this illegal trade. So the Sumatran Rescue Alliance, uh, how does it operate and what are you doing to create it? Mm -hmm. um, our two Indonesian partners are the Centre of Orangutan Protection, um, which is a really fantastic grassroots um, Indonesian organization that we, we fund to go and rescue orangutans. Um, and um, the other organization is Orangutan Information Center, another great Indonesian organization um, that's doing a lot in, in, in education. And they're providing the land, um, COP is providing the staff, and the orangutan project is, is helping with um, technical advice and funds in order to build this new rescue centre, which is under construction as we speak, which will give the Indonesian government the capacity to confiscate these orangutans from overseas, repatriate them, yeah, uh, and, and put them in proper quarantine for the safety of orangutans and people. Um, and this will then underpin the business case because they're not only going to take back the orangutan which have been stolen from Indonesia, but they're going to take back any offspring. And, and therefore, we hope to um, create an environment where the business case for, for killing orangutans and taking their babies overseas is gone because they know the Indonesian government will eventually catch up with them and repatriate them back to centres such as the Smart Rescue Alliance. Yeah.
So except for the instance of a small number of wealthy individuals who are having them as pets, the only way to make this work is for the orangutans to be publicly displayed and thereby you know where they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's correct, yes. Um, so obviously it's, it's, it's hard to hide an orangutan and, and even the, the rich people, one of the reasons, let's say even in Indonesia, people have orangutans is to show people and, 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 and funnily enough, it's the fact that they know it's illegal to keep an orangutan actually makes it attractive for them to yeah. hold because they're demonstrating the power to their friend that they're above the law. Okay, and so you'll build these uh, open enclosures and after quarantine, the uh, orangutans are, are brought in and uh, get acclimated. How many do you have so far and what do you expect the population to be coming up? Mm -hmm. Um, well, the, the, the facilities are actually under construction at the moment. Uh -huh. um, so um, we're hopefully expecting before the um, end of the year, um, the orangutan to start to be repatriated um, into the, the, the centre. And so the idea is then they will go to a forest that we've been funding the protection of for about 15 years, the Book of Tigapula ecosystem. And they're going to form part of a re-establishment of the population that went extinct in the 1830s. So far, we've supported through our partner, Frankfurt Zoological Society, um, the reintroduction of over 140 orangutans. And we want to have at least 250, 500 founders of this population in this rainforest area. And, and these orangutans will go and support the re-establishment of that population. Um, however, some of the orangutans never actually um, can fully learn to go back to the wild because the psychological harm that, that's been caused to them or um, injuries. And so these open rainforest enclosures will be areas where they can live in, in, in um, relative natural environment, you know, in the rainforest and be fed and looked after. And then their offspring will then be able to contribute to forming um, this um, wild population, which will help the orangutan through the extinction crisis. That's wonderful. Uh, I, I know you support uh, tourism efforts under your guidance and uh, done carefully. Is this going to be a place where people can visit? Uh, no, it, it won't be a, a place to visit. Um, orangutan rehabilitation and ecotourism doesn't really mix because um, orangutans need to go back to the wall um, and we need to do that in, 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 a, in a safe environment. So most people will go to, I guess, these tourist traps, which pretend to be orangutan um, rehabilitation. Um, but this is the real thing. Um, what, we, what we do is we do um, um, ecotourism where we take people um, to, to meet the real conservationists and meet the orangutans in the wild. In, in, in a safe and secure way. And that, that really gives the win-win situation where it's good for the orangutans and it gives the most um, engaging um, experience for the visitors. Earlier, you mentioned that the, as a species, they're so slow to reproduce. Can you explain a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's two ways and species can adapt to the, to the ever-changing environment. One is natural selection. And, to, and if you want to do that predominantly with your method, you have lots of offspring, all slightly different, and nature selects which one is most adapted to the ever-changing environment. But 
um, smart animals, intelligent animals have a different method that we adapt to the environment predominantly by culture. So we program the learning and adaptation to the environment from generation to generation. And to do this, we have to have very slow reproduction and long childhoods, long learning periods to program that culture. So persons such as humans, elephants, and orangutans, this is how they and we adapt to the environment. Now, this is a, a fantastic way of adaptation. However, it can only happen when there's no predator. Because if, if you start killing the very small number of offspring or killing the, the females, um, which, which, which have very slow reproduction, the population goes extinct really quickly. And so humans, elephants, and orangutans, we've evolved in the environment where effectively we've had no predators. However, when the super predator human comes along and starts um, killing orangutans, they yeah. quickly spiral to extinction. And that's why slow reproduction is the, is the most significant indicator of your vulnerability to extinction and orangutans being the most intelligent being on the planet next to humans is the slowest reproducing animal on the planet and therefore is in such great need of our help because they're so easily put on the edge to the extinction crisis. Leif, in our final uh, 30 seconds or so, please uh, tell us about your fundraising drive and uh, how people can support you. Mm -hmm. Well, we're doing a fundraising drive to support the semester Smart and Rescue Alliance. And look, we don't have any money other than what our donors and, and generous benefactors give, give us. So, you know, um, every cent we, we use goes directly into the field. Um, yes. And it's very effective in Indonesia you know, with, with, a, with the low wages and, and, and um, minimal construction costs. And so we can really make real significant change for every orangutan and the species um, through such activities. And how to donate? Um, please go to theorangutanproject.org um, and, yeah, and, and adopt, donate, um, or even sponsor some rainforest for the orangutan through the protection. And each way is a wonderful way of, of making a meaningful change in the world. Leif Cox, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. You're most welcome. Thank you. More with Animals Today after this break. from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day.
The pandemic has changed the way we spend our time and money, and this has undoubtedly trickled down to our pets. But what does the data actually say? Home improvement website Porch.com analyzed year-over-year -year pet adoption and spending data, and here's what they found. Nationally, 2020 was actually a quieter year for shelters than in 2019. Overall, there were fewer intakes, so fewer animals entering the shelter, 1.3 million versus 2.29 million, and fewer adoptions, 750,000 versus 1 million. But when you look at the percentages, adoption rates were technically up with 54% of shelter pets being adopted versus 51% in 2019. Now, keep in mind, those are nationwide numbers. All around the states, there are even some stronger adoption rate numbers than that. For instance, in Connecticut, 89%, that's almost 9 out of 10 cats and dogs that entered animal shelters in Connecticut since the start of the pandemic were adopted. In Rhode Island and New Hampshire, the adoption rates were at 82% and 80% respectively, meaning every four out of five animals that were taken into shelters found a home since the COVID pandemic broke out. And as for spending, Porch says they've seen some strong evidence from Chewy and TD Ameritrade that pet spending is on the rise. For example, Chewy, and for those of you who don't know, they're actually a publicly traded offshoot of PetSmart, recorded their highest ever revenues in 2020, peaking with a whopping $1.7 billion in the third quarter of 2020. That's 48% more than Americans spent on pet supplies with this retailer than in the same quarter of 2019. There's some serious growth here. And as per the TD Ameritrade data, dog owners outspent cat owners in every category. Dog owners spent $1,021 annually cat owners spend $687 annually. The top categories for both cat and dog owners are food, veterinary care, and grooming. Okay, let's move on to something fun. Okay, Lori. Zoology, as you know, is the branch of biology that studies the animal kingdom. But what about specific groups of animals, the branches of zoology? Yeah. Let's start with something easy. This is your quiz. You what just do you, ease right into it. Yes, I do. Yeah, any discussion can be a quiz. That's like, right. Where were you on the night of the 10th? <laughs> Why did you come in late last night? The study of monkeys and apes and other primates is called... Primatology. Primatology. Yeah. And if the study of primates is called primatology... Okay. What do you call the study of cats? Cat, cat not catology, <laughs> feline... Felinology? Yeah, I never oh, heard really? of that. But yes, felinology. How about the study of dogs? Canine something. Yeah, with that logic, you would think canine. Or, no. no, Sinology. How do you spell that? C-Y-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Mm. Sinology. Mm. What do you call the study of insects? Oh, that is entomology. That's correct. Yes, I'll drink to that. <laughs> you drink to that? You have a sip of coffee? Yeah. Okay. Uh, celebrate. <laughs> Ornithology is the study of? Of birds. Birds is correct. Yeah. A lepidopterologist <laughs> yeah. is an entomologist okay. who specializes in the collection study of what? Mm. Collection of butterflies? Butterf moths? Yes. Okay. Butter Good. Yeah. Was that a guess? You know, collecting. What, do you, what do people collect? Yeah. Okay. It's collectible. <laughs> they shouldn't, but they do. What does a dipterologist study? Mm. I'll give you multiple choice. Please. Fleas, mm -hmm. mosquitoes, or flies? Oh, boy. I'm going to say mosquitoes. Flies. Flies. How do you become a dipterologist? Flies. What kind of job can I get if I'm a dipterologist? Like so, yeah. a natural resource management, pest control. Yeah. 
public health. Where you can apply. Sorry, we were looking for a flea expert, not a fly expert. That's right. Okay. Myrmecology. Myrmec, spell that one. Myrmecology. M-Y-R-M-E-C-O-L-O-G-Y. Is a sub-discipline of entomology, which focuses on the study of what? Bees, ladybugs, or ants? I'll go with ants. Ants is correct. Yeah. You know why I know that? Because when I was had my medical practice open, all the we would play the movies Ants for the Kids. Oh ants, yeah. Ants two. Over and over and over again. I knew every line from that uh cartoon series. And they taught the kids that myrmecology is the study of ants? They, that just that ants were the coolest thing. And just look oh. at those ants so I can look at your eyes. Oh. I am an ichthyologist. Yes. What do I study? You study uh let's see. Ichthyologist makes me think of scales, uh, snakes, lizards. Close fish. Oh, it's sort of close. <laughs> <laughs> well, scales. Scales, okay. Yeah, I guess that. <laughs> the study of amphibians and reptiles, so that includes snakes, lizards, turtles, tortoises, is called heliotology, herpetology, or hematology. Yes, herpetology. That's correct. Okay. So there's a subdivision of herpetology, which deals with the study of snakes. Mm. What is that called? Reptology. No, no, no. Venomology. Ophiology. Oh, I'll go ophiology. Ophiology is I, correct. I don't remember knowing that word. Yeah. Yeah. Nematology yeah. is the study of ringworms, mm. roundworms, or tapeworms. Wow. Tapeworm, ringworm, roundworm. I'll go ringworm. Roundworm. Roundworm. Oh, yeah. The study of marine mammals, that includes whales, dolphins, porpoises, is called... Saltology, seaology, or cetology? Cetology. Cetology is yeah. correct. Cetation. That That's is right. I know. Good. Okay. CET. Okay. You yeah. did pretty good. <laughs> Do I get it? Okay. Not so good. Just my average. Yeah. I'll retest you in a few weeks, see how much you remember. Please don't do that because that never works. That never works. Okay, thanks for tuning in. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. Our dogs have been enjoying Soda Pup, Soda Pup dog toys, S-O-D-A-P-U-P. I've got two of them in front of me here. One is a, looks like a football the other looks like a cute little green frog, Lori. They've got a little hole on the bottom so you can stick your treats in there. And they are 100% made in the USA, which we like, FDA-compliant materials, of course. It's a special premium rubber material engineered for high tear strength. And they make a variety of toys in fun and unexpected shapes, including these dispensers, tug toys, ultra-durable chew toys, reward toys, and more. And uh, they are a veteran-owned business that gives back to dog-related charities. And these are, these have a really nice feel to them. So far, our dogs have not been able to tear them apart and ingest any pieces. And I don't think they will. And yet, they're not so hard as to be possibly damaging to the teeth. I just think they're a perfect combination. That's soda pup dog toys.